I tried right away. <laughs> so, okay, let's try again. So, um, so here we are, first day of 2013. And uh, sitting here and getting ready for this talk, I had this very strong feeling that uh, we're all in it together. And partly I had that feeling because many of us stayed up until midnight, and uh, many of us therefore didn't get uh, maybe enough sleep last night. And so I know I've been tired today, and so I come here tired and, and um, feeling maybe I share that with some of you. But also, um, I feel kind of tender, and in thinking why I feel tender, a little more open, maybe vulnerable, and maybe it has something to do with the tiredness, but I think it has also something to do with meeting with you, those that we met, I met with today. Um, it's a really a, a marvelous and meaningful, powerful thing to have these meetings with you. And I end up uh, having so much tremendous appreciation for each person that I meet to be with you and get a sense of you and your practice. And it's, uh, for each of you that I meet, you, I can really feel and sense and perceive how important what you're doing here is and how an important connection and process in which you're meeting yourself and working through yourself and your issues and practicing with it. It's a beautiful thing. And it's part of this kind of tired, tender, vulnerable state that I feel right now. I think uh, it's a combination of all that. And then in thinking about that, we're all in it together here. And it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for sharing this. So the topic today is um, tranquility as a factor of awakening, beautiful tranquility. Many people associate Buddhism with tranquility. The great kind of symbol of Buddhism, probably greater than any symbol, is that of the Buddha sitting in meditation. Many people who are not Buddhists have Buddha statues in their gardens. Partly because it's tranquil, it's a peaceful, it's a peace. It's kind of nice that we're in a religion where the primary symbol is a person who's at peace, tranquil, calm. And, um, you know, so tranquility, calm, relaxation, serenity. The absence of disturbance agitation, conflict. And I kind of like stating it that negatively, the absence of conflict, the absence of disturbance, absence of agitation, because I think it's quite profound, simply the absence of these things. And the absence of these things allows for so much beauty and so much of our creativity or ourselves, who we are, and depth to come forward in that shine forward. I don't know if we're supposed to always be peaceful or calm. We want to be careful not to set that up as an ideal that we're trying to live. But I like having absence of disturbance or agitation as kind of an ideal. That always seems relevant. And whether in the wake of that we're calm or not, that depends on circumstances. 
So calm, tranquility. Some of the things I associated with are sitting calmly under a, in the shade of a tree, maybe on a warm day, relaxed, at ease. The work of the day been done, perhaps. Nothing to do anymore, relaxed, at ease, tranquil. Another thing I associated with is that of a the calmness and tranquility or the calmness of a parent attending to a upset child, where one of the most profound things that the parent can offer is a tranquility and the peace that kind of supports the child. The kind of calm way in which a parent can tell a child, it's okay. It's okay is one of the most profound mantras that America has given the world. (laughs) Apparently born in Boston in the 1820s or so. They've traced it back to there. And it spread the world. And I think, isn't this like mean okay? This little hand symbol like this? I think, isn't that kind of nice because the yogis put their hands on their... on their knees this way, then to double okay. <laughs> it's okay. That's why they do it, right? <laughs> so the parent that says it's okay. I told this story here recently at Spirit Rock. Apologize for repeating myself. But it's I'm so touched and being here with touched with you and being here and thinking of this kind of very meaningful story for me of a woman who I knew on retreat here. Actually, before we had Spirit Rock, she came on retreats. And um, sincere, dedicated practitioner was a really important part of her life. And then she got uh, breast cancer. And um, she worked with it. At some point, it looked like it was pretty serious. And she was very determined, like a warrior, to overcome her breast cancer because she had a small child child, I don't know, maybe it was 10 or so. And at some point it was clear, sitting here in the interview room, she remembers she telling, me, telling me that, you know, it was, the cures were not working. And she was really angry. And um, understandably so. And angry because of her child that she was going to leave behind with the impact on the child. And I told her that how she died was going to affect that child for the rest of a child's lives. And if she died angry, that would affect the child one way. And if she died peacefully, that would affect the child a different way. And that seemed to get her attention. And so, next time I heard about her was from her husband, sometime after she had died. And he told me that um, she died peacefully in bed with her and her the child at her side. And when she died, the father and child went out to the garden and got a flower and brought it back and put it on her chest. Her peace, her tranquility, her ability to face her death uh, was a gift that she gave her child. It's a gift that we can give the world if we can learn how to be at peace in this world peace with our conflicts, our struggles that we have. And 
there is a teaching that the peace, the tranquility, the calm is not so far away if we know how to look for it or touch into it. Or sometimes it can feel like it's a huge project, but maybe it's not so far away. I like another and kind of analogy for peace or calm is the surface of the ocean might be rough, rough seas, wind and stuff. But if you're ever going uh, skin diving under the surface of the ocean, you don't have to go very, very many feet and you can kind of flip over and look up and you can kind of see that the waves are kind of up there breaking and doing their thing, but it feels quite calm and peaceful down below. In the depths of the ocean, it's calm. The surface is rough. So we often live on the surface of our lives in our thoughts and the stories, ideas, our reactions. But part of the peace is found deep inside as we drop in. And so part of what we're doing in a practice like this is to be fully here so that we can, as we're fully here, to touch into the depths of what's here right now that's underneath the surface of of what we're doing. I like the expression that in this practice of vipassana, we're not trying to go from A to B. We're trying to go from A to A. And to really be here in A. It's a rare thing for someone to be here. To really be here. And not only to be here, but to be here and feel at home in this world or feel at ease in this world, feel tranquil not to be running around and caught up. You know, they, they one of the opposite of being tranquil in Buddhism is the monkey mind. And the idea of the monkey mind is like the monkey that is swinging from branch to branch and almost before it's grabbed one branch, the, the arm is already reaching out to grab the next branch. Just, so the mind reaching, always reaching, reaching, reaching for the next thought, for the next thought, for something else never settled. It said in the myths of Buddhism that it was a tranquil monk or renunciant seeker in the time of the Buddha that propelled the Buddha for his quest to find his awakening, his peace that he saw he had an encounter with sickness, old age, and death. And after seeing those, which disturbed him, then he saw walking down the streets, a renunciant who was walking down calmly, peacefully. And he'd never seen such a person before. And he asked, what is that? And his attendant said, oh, that's a renunciant. And so then he thought, well, maybe that's a path to walk, to find some resolution, some peace in the middle of this life of sickness, old age, and death. So how do we touch into tranquility? How do we, how are we supported by it, nourished by it? And one of the instructions the Buddha gives 
is to recognize when it's here. And sometimes it can be hard to recognize it's here for a number of reasons. One reason is because we're caught up in our concerns. And our concerns are much more important than everything else. And so often we have blinders on because we see the world and we're kind of so focused on what our concerns are of the moment. But often there's much more peace around here than you realize, not that far away. The Buddha said, nourished by this, nourished by a tranquility. So recognize it and drink it in, take it in. Tranquility of the body, tranquility of the mind, and tranquility of the surroundings. It's been meaningful for me to recognize that when I'm agitated, if I look around, the agitation is not around me. You know, some, some people get pretty, you know, all kinds of wonderful mind states happen in this hall. Agitated, afraid, angry, grieving, spinning, restless, many things. But it's kind of remarkable, the location of that agitated mind. Have you ever thought about the exact location of where it's occurring and how far beyond you it extends? And I've known people who've opened their eyes to look around in this hall to get, uh, be stabilized, to wake up, to realize there's much more here and to appreciate this room, you know, it's really still and quiet. And it's safe here. And it's a powerful lesson because uh, to look around and realize it's still and quiet and pretty safe here, that um, the lack of safety, the worry and the fear are often having to do with things which are not right here. And so if they're not right here now, if they just reside in our thoughts, in the ideas and concepts we have, what kind of reality do they, do they have? And why do we give more reality to our thoughts than we do to what's here? Who told you you're supposed to? Why do, you give, why do we give so much authority to our thoughts? Why do we invest so much in them? There is nothing in the world more insubstantial than a thought. There's nothing that weighs less than a thought. There's nothing which is more invisible than a thought. And we treat it as the most important possible thing in the whole entire universe. Isn't it astounding that we would do this? And then if on top of that, if you realize that most of those thoughts have to do with you, that's even more amazing of all the things you could be thinking about. So to look around and realize you know, there's a lot more peace here. And one of the things that we as teachers see that sometimes is kind of invisible to retreatants is that you guys are much more calm and tranquil than you realize. And I've, I've known that I've been, on, you know, been a retreatant and haven't realized it until something happens, like the retreat ends and people start talking or get in my car to drive. And, and you know, I had once, a few years ago, I sat a month-long retreat by myself, kind of self-retreat. I remember coming to the retreat center, I was given a little cottage to, by myself. 
And I came to the place, and I, I remember walking and carrying my luggage to the room and walking across the little place. I thought, wow, this place is so tranquil, so peaceful. This is a great place to meditate. Just felt the peace. So then I did my month, and then I was packing up to leave, and I was walking the same place with my luggage just the opposite direction. And I looked around and I remembered the peace I felt the first day and I didn't feel it. <laughs> I said, what happened? <laughs> Not here. And I kind of looked at myself. Yeah, I just feel kind of ordinary, normal. I guess that was a wasted month. <laughs> Not, n- nothing happened, you know. I just feel like, you know, ordinary, you know, nothing like could be walking down the street someplace. And it was so peaceful when I started, you know. So, so then I went down to the office to check out and to, you know, finish my books or whatever, to check out of the office. And um, I walked in, normal, and I couldn't speak. <laughs> I couldn't find the words. I was like, <laughs> I, was so, I was so deep, I was so still and so quiet. And I had habituated to it. It had become the new, new normal because it kind of happened slowly and entered into it. So many of you I know are much calmer than you normally would, but you get used to it, it happens so slowly, it sneaks up on you while you're so busy having your thoughts and your concerns and your worries. You have important things that you have important things to pay attention to. <laughs> and so you don't notice. But I can tell you, all of you, after a week now, are much calmer, more settled, more peaceful. And um, I could easily suggest that we all go do something now that a week ago might have been interesting. But now, <laughs> please, not. You just feel how, you know, it's kind of would spin you out. So I'm saying all this as a way to help you. Maybe you can look around a little bit in, your he- in yourself, outside, and be nourished by the stillness and the tranquility that's here, the safety. I've had that uh, when I, it's been very interesting for me, uh, sometimes when I was, I couldn't sleep at night, middle of the night I wake up and, um, and feel agitated, anxious, worried, thinking, especially thinking, well, I'm supposed to get asleep. I'm supposed to be sleeping now. This is a problem. I mean, no one told me you're supposed to, but you know, I have this idea I'm supposed to. And then I have this idea, well, if I don't get enough sleep, then I won't be able to take care of my day tomorrow. And something I'll mess up. I'll trip over my words giving a Dharma talk and that'll be embarrassing. And, you know, so I get, you know, so I get kind of worked up laying there. Nothing. But then if I look around in the present moment, laying there in bed, I'm warm, I'm safe, I'm out of the elements. I usually have had enough to eat. And actually in the moment, things are pretty good. I'm awake. Unfortunately, the awake feeling feels good. It's just like I'm awake. <laughs> and, but they're not a problem. And so then what I'll do is I'll just lay there and appreciate how in the moment right now, the, it's, it feels good, it's nice, it's tranquil, it's peaceful. And the agitation, the impatience and all those things is born from my projection into the future of what this means the next day. And again, the question is why live in those projections? Why give them so much authority? Why be so caught in that world? Sometimes I think I'm a very slow learner. That's why I've had to be in Buddhism so long. 
And one of the ways that um, <clears throat> one of the ways that you know I've been slow learner is that um, I had to watch myself plan the future and think it out and plan what's going to happen and know you know project what's going to happen and, and then have the future show up and it'd be nothing like how I planned it. Nothing how I projected, nothing how I imagined it was going to be like. So I must have had seen that 10, 20, 30,000 times <laughs> until it finally dawned on me that I had a very poor track record <laughs> at pl- projecting and imagining the future. And that helped me a lot. When finally, when it dawned on me, because now I hold my imaginations kind of lightly. I, you know, maybe, I'll say, imagine something, oh, maybe. Maybe it'll be like this, who knows? Who knows? I'm tired today, that means that, oh no, I'll fall asleep during my Dharma talk. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I actually think that would be quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Then I'd be really relaxed and <laughs> not caught by anything. And <laughs> so to look around, appreciate the peace, the tranquility that's here, beyond your thoughts. Also, uh, it's interesting to realize where the, the peace is. The agitation is. It's a story. The monastery work leader always appeared peaceful. This was not so unusual among the monks and nuns of the monastery. He was unique, however, in that he remained peaceful and calm even when the monastery was at its busiest. For example, when large crowds of people visited to celebrate the Buddha's birthday. If a person was needed to visit the hustle and bustle of the local market town, this was the monk the monastery usually sent. When asked how he managed to remain peaceful, he said, I entered the monastery for peace and quiet. I had spent years in the harried world of commerce and people. I longed for the silence the monastery was rumored to have. I was delighted with my first weeks in the monastery. The silence was exquisite. However, as I settled into the silence of the, of the place, I was shocked to learn how noisy my own mind was. The real noise was within. It was the busyness of my own mind that oppressed me, not the noise and activity of the world. Now, it doesn't matter where I go, I carry the silence within me. So it's not just a matter of recognizing the peace around us, but part of the tranquility and the calm of a place like this, not being in social conversations, being quiet, not having a lot going on, is in fact so that we can see the noise inside. We can see the busyness, the agitation, the monkey mind inside. And it's not a mistake that you come to Spirit Rock on retreat and discover that you're not tranquil. 
It's not a mistake that you come here and discover that your mind is spinning out and caught up. It's designed for this to happen, for you to see this. That's what it's all about, to see that. And so part of the path to tranquility is to begin understanding, seeing how we're not tranquil. And it's very, you have to be very careful that you don't set up tranquility or calm as, the, as like the be-all and end-all, what you have to do, and like try to make yourself calm, damn it. But rather, when you don't feel calm, when you feel agitated or conflicted or troubled, is to uh, uh, study that, be interested in that, open to that, get to know that. One of the ways of, they say, of calming a horse or a cow or something is to give it a wide pasture, to give yourself a wide pasture. It's okay for you to be who you are. Isn't that radical? It's okay. And so the story of the muddy pond You calm the muddy pond, you passively bring it, make it clear and settled by leaving it alone. If you go to the muddy pond with a stick and stir it up to see if it's a, how clear it is, you know, it doesn't ever settles. You have to leave it alone. So there's something very important here about giving ourselves a wide pasture or leaving ourselves alone. Leaving ourselves alone means to just be present for how we are, even if we don't like it, be present for it, without adding anything more to it, without reacting to it, being for or against it, judging ourselves, hating ourselves, blaming ourselves, trying to change it, trying to fix anything. Something very powerful about just not doing much. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, I do people a disservice as a teacher if I give people too many instructions of what to do. There's wonderful instructions, but um, compared to Zen, we overdo it, right? And um, because sometimes what's really needed is to have just enough, all the instructions to help you so you don't do something. So all these wonderful Vipassana instructions are meant to help you do less, (laughs) not to do more. So we can leave ourselves alone. It's okay. It's okay. And one of the re- one of the reasons why it's okay to leave yourself alone, just hold yourself and be present for how you are, is that the mind needs to be stirred up again and again to stay active, to stay agitated. It's not the nature of the mind by itself to be agitated. It's only agitated by getting re-agitated. Only because we react and react and re-react again, being for or against and trying to fix and you know, being so caught up in the details of what's going on and you know, judging it, wanting, hating, being afraid, caught up in our doubt, that we write our experience, everything's so meaningful, so consequential, so important, so much we have to do. And so we, we get caught up in these stories. And then what we're doing is we're refueling, we're re- you know, it's like a, like a, a spring which is, you wind up, 
we leave it alone, it unwinds. <clears throat> but if we keep winding and winding and winding it, it always stays ready, you know, taut and tense. There's a story, a great story, um, from the Chinese tradition, Zen tradition of um, a wonderful painter, great, one of the great painters of China who painted a dragon, fierce looking dragon. He was painting really close in, painting the dragon. And when it was complete, he stepped back to look at what he created. It scared him and he ran away. <laughs> so if you're, you know, if you don't give yourself enough space, if you kind of, you know, and they're really, you know, it's, you can create stories and ideas of all kinds of things and you can, it can frighten you. You can react strongly. So part of this practice is to see what we do, to get to know our agitation. It's really important. And to do it with compassion, with okayness, not being troubled, hopefully without embarrassment, hopefully without shame or guilt or feeling bad. Or if you do feel embarrassed or shameful or guilty for what your mind does, to hopefully hold that gently, make space for that. Not, not space so you, keep, you can do it better, but space so it can begin to unwind and, and not be kind of reinforced all the time. Also from the Chinese Zen tradition, there's a famous story of um, Zen of um, the man who became the second patriarch, the second great teacher of Zen, just when Zen was beginning in China. And his name was Waker. And he'd heard that an Indian meditation teacher named Bodhidharma had come to China. And he'd gone all over China, Waker had gone all over China looking for someone who could help him with his agitated mind. And so he went and found Bodhidharma, who was now meditating deep in the mountains in a mountain cave. And he found him in the wintertime and he trudged up through the snow and stood outside the cave in the snow. And Bodhidharma didn't, didn't give him any time of day. So he stood for several days in the snow waiting for Bodhidharma to kind of take him seriously. There's a way, at least in, I saw in Japan, maybe it was in China too, that uh, teachers don't really teach people until the people show their real depth of their sincerity and dedication. You have to prove it. You can't just sign up for a retreat. And then when I was in Japan, the monastery there, it was kind of like a ritual. It kind of lost the real sense of it. But I showed up to do, a, do the retreat, the practice period in Japan. And so I had to go through this ritual, proving my mettle and sincerity. So um, as soon as I got there, they took me back out of the monastery and parked me at the gate. And I had to stand outside the gate of the monastery and just stand there for a long time just like Waker stood outside the cave, you know, in order to prove that I was serious, that I really, you know, wanted to, wanted to be there. So eventually he let me in. And uh, so anyway, so Waker had an agitated mind. And so finally Bodhidharma saw him and saw he was sincere. And so he said, well, what do you want? And he said, I have an agitated mind. I'm troubled, troubled mind. Can you help settle it for me? 
That's the first half of the story. I'll tell you the second half near the end of the talk. <laughs> I, hear that, I hear that's a good storytelling technique. So, um, but, uh, you know, I want to leave you there because the agitation is important here. He was motivated by it. And this is one of the great things about your troubles. Your troubles are also your fuel your, for, be, for your practice. Your fuel, your inspiration to try to make a difference in it, to discover peace, to discover freedom, to discover love and compassion. You can be oppressed by your troubles or you can be in a certain kind of way inspired by them, fueled by them to try to discover how to live a better life. Not just for yourself, certainly for yourself, but also for others. And the, the word for taking your troubles and being inspired by them is in Pali is in samvega. There's a beautiful word, samvega. Vega means kind of like to shake or tremble, to certain kind of trembling or shaking or motivation. Uh, I call it the kind of a enthusiasm for practice, to take our situation we're in and don't be a victim of it, but rather be inspired and moved to try to practice with it. So Weku was a person like that. He saw his agita- agitated mind and he, w- he was motivated. He stood in the snow for days because he was really wanted to find some resolution for it. So don't be afraid of your troubles. It's really part of the fuel for all this. So then we study what keeps us agitated, what keeps us from being tranquil. It's a fascinating study. And for different people at different times, it's different things we discover about ourselves. Sometimes uh, we are chasing after our preferences. When we live in our likes and dislikes. And just, uh, that's so important to have what we want. So being driven by desire, wanting, greed, wanting things to be a certain way, wanting to, be, to control things, wanting to prove ourselves, wanting to defend ourselves. Sometimes it's aversion. I hate it, I don't want it, I want to get away from something. And this movement of desire and aversion is such powerful forces in the mind. It keeps us energized. I call it the caffeine of the soul. And some people love desire and anger because how they get energized from it and it gets them going. Tremendous cost, at a tremendous cost. So it's possible to, to see and watch how this operates and to meet it kindly with compassion to make a, in a certain kind of way a wide pasture for it, to kind of not, being, not be caught in its grip, not be in its orbit, but to let it settle by watching it and being with it. It takes a while. It's possible sometimes to notice that how much of the agitation we have, the mind spinning and moving and going this way and that way, has to do with self, selfing, making up stories about ourselves or creating an identity, defending an identity, hiding identity, having in conversations with people, or imagining futures and past, all around identity issues, being someone, not being someone. And it can keep people spinning for a long, long time. 
proving ourselves, being something for somebody, seeing ourselves through the eyes of other people. The thing that I remember, what I think I was caught up with, uh, painfully so, when I was in the Tassajara Zen Monastery. Well, I wasn't, I mean, I think it was a, a very strong uh, pattern of mine that I only saw when it made me miserable. That's part of the advantage of becoming miserable. Then you see it, finally, what you're doing. And my thing was, um, I wanted everyone to like me. And that's, you know, impossible, right? So, and so I was in the kitchen at Tassajara for a year. And the, some of you know, the kitchen at Tassajara is like a pressure cooker. And it's the last place in the world you should be if you want everyone to like you. <laughs> and uh, I remember one person came up to me, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the people, I was, I was kind of like the kitchen manager. And one of the people in my crew said, Gil, uh, come outside, I need to talk to you. Okay, so I went outside. And he said, Gil, if you weren't so sincere, I'd punch you out. <laughs> so, you know, it was a, it was a you know, interesting place. And um, so, you know, I was wanting people to like me. And so I started getting, you know, a lot of stress around this and started to see it. And when I saw the cost of it, then I started seeing what I was doing. Only then did I start letting it up giving it up. So my agitation there was born out of this, you know, wanting to be seen in a certain way by other people. So my whole identity, who I was, who I thought I had to be, was all in reference to how other people saw me. And there's, there's no freedom in that. But so much of people's agitation, agitated mind, spinning mind, working mind that we have, has a lot to do about negotiating our relationships with others in the world around us. For good reason, you know, we're trying to be safe, we're trying to make our way in this difficult world. It's reasonable to do that. But it's a little bit of a dead end, it doesn't really work. Or the deepest forms of peace are not found that way. And so part of the task of coming on retreat and meditating is certainly understanding how our mind works, understanding when we're caught up in the relational world, that we're caught in it, that's what it is. And it has an important place in human life, the relational world. But as long as you're in the relational world, your mind has to always be thinking. It has to be active. And so it doesn't give you access to the deeper peace and settledness that the mind is capable of. And so if you're always negotiating yourself interpersonally, that's what your thoughts are about. You're trying to find the solution to your life there. You can't really discover your potential for deeper peace. And even when, oddly enough, when your relationships with people around you work really well and feel satisfying, there's a certain kind of peace from that. Because that peace relies on that network of thoughts and connections, the peace is not that deep. Even though it might, you know, I'm not, I'm not, gonna, not knocking it and say it's not, not, that it's bad, it's good. But so, very important here, right, is to understand that so that we can begin putting down the concerns for interpersonal things on retreat. So we can go deeper into the ocean, go deeper into the source, deeper into the root, underneath where it all begins. And this is, this is part of what we're trying to do here, is to go down to where it begins, the origin, the source of where it all is. An example I gave one or two of you on, 
interviews was, you know, uh, this example of the hand, you know, you have, we have, you know, when we have five fingers and these five fingers are trying to figure out our life and trying to make it do in our life and trying to grab and hold on to something important, understand and reach out. And it can be pretty busy, you know, the agitated hand, the agitated mind, trying to do something, trying to figure it all out. And you can kind of figure some of the stuff out. So maybe one of the fingers stops flailing around, but, you know, but then the other four keep doing it. And if you're lucky, sometimes they all stop. <laughs> That's nice, but then something happens and they're, you know, and so, so you try to solve it, you hold it down, and you hide it because it's embarrassing, you know, all kinds of things we do. But, but the solution is not found here in the hand. The solution is found down here. Hold it, and this can relax. So where's the source? Where's the, where's the root? What is it that needs support? What is, where's the place that's deeper down that we can touch and meet? And so, it's, so the idea that the solution's not found in the thoughts and the interpersonal relationships and the identities and all these, and, and pleasure. It's very important not to look for a solution in pleasure. If you're only free when you're comfortable, you're not really free. Some people are really addicted to pleasure of all kinds. They think that if they're uncomfortable, it's a personal failing, failing. They have to fix it. But it's all this flailing about. But it's part of the reason to kind of look beyond that and put it to rest on retreat if we can, or not to take, not to invest so much importance in it, to give it so much authority, is so we can begin settling and look more deeply at the source, at the origin. What's, what's deeper down? So part of the function of tranquility, one of the reasons why tranquility is important in Buddhist practice, is that in the, when the lake surface is rippling and agitated, you can't see a reflection of yourself. But when the lake is still, you can lean over the lake and see your reflection. If your mind is agitated, you can't really see yourself deeply. But when the mind is quiet, then you can see something quite deep and significant. So, to sit, and discover the tranquility of the body by softly, gently, lovingly sitting still with your body. Letting the body be still so that the body from the inside can begin softening and letting go and relaxing. And letting the the stillness of the body, soft, nurturing stillness of the body if you can, let that be a part of what holds the agitation of your heart, the agitation of your mind. Just like this, the quiet and peace of this big hall can hold you and create a context so you realize that you're, you know, that there is a lot of peace here. So also the body can do that sometimes. So to recognize when the body's tranquil or peaceful, hold it that way. It can be hard, there can be a lot of Tremendous energy sometimes in the body not to be still. But give that a wide pasture, it's okay.
And then the agitated mind, the heart. What's the source? What is the root of it? I don't know what the root, the source of your agitation is, but one of the suggestions of the tradition is that that some of it has to do with having an attachment to self, to having a location of self, to having at the center of your awareness in your mind the agent, the one who controls, the one who's receiving experience, being the one who kind of measures everything, the one who um, wants things and doesn't want things, and the one that wants to be free. So, um, this story is called A Day Without Self. One evening, the abbess declared that the next day, every monk and nun was prohibited <clears throat> from using the word, <clears throat> from using the word "I, me, mine, and myself," <clears throat> unless it was required for answering a direct question from someone else. <clears throat> the next morning was chaotic, feeling as if they were learning to walk all over again. The monastics kept tripping over their words and stumbling in all their interpersonal interactions. By the afternoon, some were humbled, confused, and dismayed to learn how frequently their impulses to speak, as well as their thinking, was self-referential. By the evening, the predominant atmosphere in the monastery was one of relief, as the monks and nuns realized that they had survived an entire day without initiating any self-focused discussion. And as they lay themselves down to sleep, each person was amazed at how clear and at ease their mind had become. So, the Buddhist tradition says that, you know, at the source of a lot of this has to do with this being a location, being a self, being someone who controls the control tower, being the one who measures, the one who experiences things. And a little bit you can see that, and what the tradition talks about, is the very idea that you're moving your mind. Like I move my mind, I'm gonna bring my mind to my breath. I'm gonna turn my mind and be aware of something else. Or now there's something out in front of me happening. Or I'm here and that's over there. All this idea of location and place for the self the tradition's not wrong, but the tradition says that that involves a subtle agitation. And it's not necessary. It's not necessary to locate oneself here or there or anywhere. That's the expression in the early Buddhist tradition. Not locating oneself here, not locating oneself there, and not locating oneself anywhere in between. Maybe a bit of a koan, what does that mean? I'm here, right? Where else am I gonna be? But I'm, probably some of you have had the experience of doing something that really absorbed your attention, were quite involved, and there was no self-referential feeling or sense in that activity. In a certain kind of way, you disappeared as you did it. You weren't concerned or thinking about me here, a location. 
So what is that place where there is no waves in the mind? What is that place where we don't locate? There is no location. It doesn't even make sense to say we, lo- we don't locate ourselves. There just is, there's awareness, there's presence. There is no movement. The unmoving mind is held up as kind of a, almost a synonym with awakening and freedom. The mind that doesn't move, doesn't react. Certainly responsive and aware and sensitive and empathic, wise, intelligent. But that mind doesn't have to move. To be here, unmoved. The unmoving mind. So Weka, this um, was standing there in the snow. Bodhidharma came out of his came out of his cave and said, well, "What do you want?" And Weka said, "I have an agitated mind. Please pacify it." And Bodhidharma said to him. Show me your mind. And Waker said, I can't. And Bodhidharma said, Then it's pacified. And that was his awakening. Where is your mind? Can you show your mind? If the self turns around and looks for itself, what does it see? Is there anything there? Behind your eyes, what do your eyes see? When you don't, when you don't use thoughts to tell yourself who you are, who are you? Who are you before you ask the question, who am I? Or if you feel very strongly, like like I am here, I'm alive, I'm present, there's a strong sense here of being me. What is it that knows that? And what is it that knows that? What's, What's the quality of that knowing? is that knowing that knows, is the knowing itself peaceful, tranquil? So you might experiment a little bit. 
with the very mindfulness practice this retreat's about, of knowing what your experience is in the present moment, here and now. But see if you can experiment to find a knowing, a recognition of what's happening, and seeing if that knowing can be peaceful and calm. A calm knowing of the breath as you breathe. A calm knowing as you, as you, of your steps as you walk. Not that you have to be calm, but there can be a calm knowing of your agitation. What does it take to let the knowing, the recognition, be a little bit to be somewhat intentional but in that intentionality of just knowing to have it be calm and relaxed. Can you find a peaceful, free knowing of your experience? And if you try too hard, you won't just find it. You try too hard to be peaceful, it'll, it'll elude you. Give yourself a wide pasture, leave your pond alone. And remember that great American mantra, it's okay. Let's collect ourselves together in a few minutes of sitting here quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.